you can keep your Bibles right where they're at. That will be our text for this morning. Last Sunday, we re-engaged our study through the book of Acts. We have been in the book of Acts for a long time, and we had taken about a 15-week break, and so we got back into it last Sunday. We looked at chapter 21, verses 1 through 16, and how Paul exhibited this amazing courage and an unwavering commitment to follow through with the ministry that the Lord Jesus had given him. Part of that ministry included the collection of a special offering from the Gentile churches in Asia Minor, Achaia, and Macedonia, and delivering that special offering to the church at Jerusalem. Uh, The church at Jerusalem was, I would say, probably in some ways flat, broke. All of its resources were depleted because it had this ongoing ministry to the community and to the brethren, and, uh, and there were a lot of impoverished believers in and around Jerusalem. And so all of these Gentile churches, Paul went, you know, he planted all these churches, then he went back to them and, and asked for them to give generously. And so he has this collection with him, if you will. This was part of what the Lord had asked him to do. And while en route to Jerusalem, Paul sailed from Patara across the Mediterranean Sea to Tyre, where he spent the day with believers who basically spent the whole day warning him not to go to Jerusalem. What an interesting thing. You go to visit, you know, you're on your way to Jerusalem, and then all of these believers start telling you, don't go there, it's dangerous, you need to stay here. And yet Paul continued from Tyre to Ptolemais, and then to Jerusalem's port city, Caesarea. When he arrived there, he stayed with Philip the Evangelist and his family. He had these four young daughters who were prophetesses. At this point, Paul was seeking to be in Jerusalem by Pentecost, a Jewish holiday, if you will, and also the day that really the church was born, if you will. And he was actually ahead of schedule, so he chose to stay with Philip for, it says, many days in the scripture, an extended period of time, if you will. And during that stay there with Philip and his family, those four daughters in the church, a prophet named Agabus came from Judea, probably from Jerusalem, to warn Paul about the dangers that he faced in Jerusalem. And so here we have this second time that he's on this trip to Jerusalem. After he leaves Miletus, he's on his way, and this is the second time that he was warned not to go. And this was a really interesting and and potentially awkward situation because when Agabus arrived, he sort of walked up to Paul and took off his belt. Um, I don't know about you, but if somebody that I hardly knew, maybe if I did not know, walked up to me and tried to take my belt off, I would think that's weird wishing that I had taken jujitsu or something of that nature. And so this prophet comes in and he removes his belt and proceeds to tie himself up with the belt and say, the man who owns this belt, this is what's going to happen to him. Uh, Another reason to know jujitsu. It's like, seriously, this is what the guy did. And so this happened while he was staying with them. and, And this literally terrorized the household of Philip as well as Paul's companions. And they began to all plead with him not to go to Jerusalem. Don't go to Jerusalem. Stay here. Stay out of the city. It's dangerous. And it began to break Paul's heart. The sorrow that his close friends in that church felt really impacted him emotionally. And and also there was probably a bit of, of frustration in that he was absolutely convinced that he needed to go to Jerusalem no matter what 
no matter what warnings he received. And so you know how this is. If you know that you've got something to do and your well-intending friends are telling you don't go do it, and you're saying, I'm telling you, the Lord has commanded me to go do this thing. I need to follow through with this. And if they keep persistent and on you, don't do it, don't do it, don't do it, it can be frustrating and you can become sorrowful and maybe a little angry. I don't know if he was angry or not, but in any case, they did not prevail. He was fixed on this thing. He had this unwavering commitment to going and doing what he had been told to do. And it didn't have just to do with this offering that he was delivering, but it was a part, part of his ministry that you know, he knew that he had to do. And eventually he had been told by the Lord that it had been revealed to, the, to him, I believe in a dream through the Holy Spirit, that he had to make his way to Rome too. So first Jerusalem and then Rome. And so he, he knew God had it all worked out. He was committed to going no matter what warnings he received. And he departed. He gave, they gave up and he departed. They said, let the will of the Lord be done. And then after many more days, Paul and his companions, and what's really incredible is even some of the Caesarean believers accompanied him and went to the city. I just think that's amazing that with all this fear and trepidation and worry that the Holy Spirit was in their midst among them, girding them up and strengthening them in the Spirit to proceed. And, and some of these other people were just emboldened by Paul's courage and said, man, we're going to go. And, and don't think for a moment that Paul would have been the only target if he'd gone into Jerusalem because Jerusalem was a hotbed for persecution. And so they went and they arrived and, and stayed at the house of a guy named Manasseh, a Cyprian, an early believer. That's where we left off. Our text this morning will be 21, 17 through 26. We just read that together. I hope you're still there. I'd like to pray one more time and then we'll get to work. Amen? You good? Hopefully you're ready to take some notes. You know, if, if we could take half as good a notes as Annika down here, things would happen for us. And so she is a, a great young student of the word. I'm very proud of her. Father, thank you for this time. I pray that you would humble us, Lord. Give us ears to hear, eyes to see, hearts to receive the truth. Even though the truth can be very hard, it can be very difficult, it can be very impactful, give us hearts to receive it this morning. May Jesus be glorified during this time. May you be glorified, Father. May the Godhead be glorified. And may we be humbled and trained and taught in this divine moment. Teach us. And we pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, I say let's begin with verses 17 and 18. Are you there? 21, 17 and 18. It says again, when we had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James and all the elders were present. That's where we pick up. Now there's several things to notice in these two little tiny verses. First would be the reception. When Paul and his entourage arrived at the house of Manansen in Jerusalem, they received, they were received gladly by the brothers. Okay, so the first thing we see is him arriving at this house of Manansen, which was in Jerusalem, and he was received, this whole entourage, this whole group, and he had a pretty good-sized group with him, they were received gladly, and, and, and this is interesting because I think this might have played into that, but the fact is he hadn't been in that area for five years. He was gone. He'd, he'd, he'd done a little bit of ministry in that area in the, in the early years, and then he came over there for the ecumenical council meeting just to defend justification by faith alone. That was the last time he was there during that council meeting in the city. 
And so none of these guys had seen him for five years. And some of these guys probably had heard of him, but had never seen him ever before they were newer believers. And so it had been five years since he set foot in the holy city. Pretty amazing, you know, when you see somebody after that length of time, you're, you're pretty excited to see them and maybe the whole group that they have with them. Now let's consider the gladness they exhibited in light of who Paul was with. Manansen was a Hellenistic Jew, which means that he had been raised to think and worship like a Jew while living in a Grecian culture. He was kind of a half-breed, if you will, kind of half-Jewish, half-Greek in a sense. Fully, in terms of his religion, he was Jewish, but he lived amongst Greeks and kind of lived as a Greek in some ways. And I wouldn't say he was into the revelry and partying and debauchery that the Greeks were into because he was Jewish, but he still had massive Greek influence over him and in his life. He was originally from Cyprus. That's what it means to be a Cyprian. It would appear that he moved to Jerusalem to be closer to the temple, which was the center of Jewish religion. Now, this was really the goal of all the diaspora and Hellenistic Jews. Any Jew who lived outside of Jerusalem thought that the ultimate thing to do was to somehow move to Jerusalem and die there. Why? So that they could be resurrected from that point. So they all wanted to get to Jerusalem if they could. And some of them lived very far, and, and Cyprus was a pretty decent distance. And so this particular guy, Manansen, obviously was from Cyprus, but had somehow maybe moved to Jerusalem, maybe to do that very thing. It was very common amongst Jews then. And then yet, as he was either converted, I don't know if he was converted in Cyprus, possibly, but I think he was probably converted when he was in Jerusalem, maybe even on the day of Pentecost. But the point is, is that he became a believer, a follower of Jesus Christ. We really don't know where or when. Some say that it happened on the day of Pentecost when Peter preached that famous sermon and 3,000 people were saved and baptized. And then after that, there were more that were saved. He could have been a part of that group. And, and this is darn near 20 years later. And so when you say he was an early believer, this means that he'd probably been a believer for, you know, 18, 20 years. And for some of us in that room, that's, that's still a baby Christian. Some of you guys in this room have been saved for 40 years or whatever, 50 years. Bruce, 60 years, you know, and don't you dare blame your wife. I know every time I make it, every time I make an old joke about you, you, you say she's a year older than you. Very foolish. Whatever. And so this guy was an early convert, probably converted maybe on the day of Pentecost or something like that. It does say in verse 16 that he was an early disciple, so that could be true. In any case, he had a strong Jewish upbringing, which could have made it difficult for him to interact with some of Paul's companions who were purely Gentile or non-Jewish. Now, if you've studied the scripture at any length, you'll know that Jews and Gentiles had trouble. Even after, you know, the church, you know, the church age began and you had Gentile Christians and Jewish Christians, they spent a lot of time feuding and a lot of, there was a lot of strife and a lot of disunity amongst them. You know, Jews thought a particular way and, 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 and did religion a certain way and Gentiles the opposite. And so I was, the dynamics were really incredible during this day. And I, I'm encouraged to see that this household, which had Jews or Hellenistic Jews in it, warmly received, if you will, this entourage who was comprised of Gentiles because that, those, the dynamics there, they don't work. And that's an encouraging thing. 
Paul's entourage consisted of delegates from some of the churches that he had planted. He had with him Sopater of Derby and Aristarchus and Secundus from Thessalonica, Gaius and Timothy from Derby and Tuchicus and Trophimus from Ephesus. You, you can read that in Acts 20 verse 4. All of these guys are Greek. All of these guys are non-Jewish. None of those guys understand Judaism. Maybe they do at this point because they're now believers because, you know, Christianity is kind of the fulfillment of that religion, if you will. At least Jesus is. But none of these guys had that Jewish background. They were all Gentile. And if you were a Jew, you could not associate with them, touch them, dine with them, or have them in your home. In fact, any physical contact with a Gentile or the things they touched, including the ground they walked on, would render a Jew unclean, and even a Hellenistic Jew in a sense. If a Jew accidentally came in contact with a Gentile or if they returned to Jerusalem after traveling through Gentile lands, they had to perform a cleansing ritual where they would be washed by water. They could, they could not enter the temple to make sacrifices, to live out in, in the religion in a sense and, and worship until they had been ceremonially cleaned if they'd come in contact with anything that belonged to a Gentile or a Gentile person. If they entered the temple prior to washing themselves, they would defile the temple and become subjected to harsh punishment and even death. This is serious stuff here. We laugh about it. We're Americans. We rub shoulders with people in Walmart. We try not to. That was supposed to be funny. You never seen the people of Walmart videos? Yeah, it's like there are there are such things as clothes beyond pajamas. You know, it's like I'm amazed at how many people wake up in their pajamas and and go to work or go to shopping or whatever. It's like hello, especially with some of those guys where they're wearing them down here. But you know we'll pretty much rub shoulders with anyone. But here, man, this is not the case here. I mean, this is a serious, serious thing. And yet, Manansen had no concerns or objections. He could tell that some of Paul's companions were Gentiles. I mean, you could literally tell them. They wore different types of clothes, spoke differently, acted differently. And yet, he and his household welcomed them gladly. Now, this tells us something. And I don't want to beat a you know, horse here to death. I don't want to belabor the point. But it does tell us something about Manansen. And it tells us that he was a mature believer who understood Christian liberty and didn't get hung up on Jewish practices, even though that was his upbringing. It shows that, that the gospel of Jesus Christ was making some serious ground in his life and, you know, relieving him of the old stipulations and traditions and way of thinking and, and these sorts of things. And, that, and that's hugely important for us to, to grasp that here, that, that, that maybe we're all Christians in this room. Lord, I hope so. But maybe some of us grew up with particular traditions and, and things that, you know, and, and quite frankly, what I see today in the church, and I, I'm really glad that I, you know, wasn't saved my whole life and, and grew up into those things because, and I'm not saying it's bad if you did, but they, they have a strong tendency to be bad in that you take those things and you make your faith all about those things instead of Jesus and instead of loving God and loving others. And, and therefore, you won't go into Walmart because you shouldn't be around those kinds of people, which at their root, we all are, aren't we? I don't wear pajamas to Walmart, but I'm a sinner. 
you know? The traditions that you're, you're trained and taught through your Christian faith, some of them, quite frankly, many of them aren't even biblical. You know, the, the golden calf of the Reformation was infant baptism, which has no precedence in Scripture. None. There's nothing in Scripture that talks about baptizing babies. And yet, the golden calf, the, the object of worship by my own kind, reform types, was infant baptism. We will fight on every hill over this thing. Really? You'll divide over that? Yeah, we will. Shame on you. You see, so that's why we rejoice when we see a mature believer in, in what he does and how he welcomes them gladly. Because a mature believer understands his Christian liberty, understands that he can have a pulled pork sandwich. and doesn't condemn anyone else for eating one because he thinks he's got to still hang on to some of those Jewish rules. That wasn't the case here. The second thing to note, look at who was leading the church in that second verse there. At the end of verse 18, it says, James and all the elders were present Hey, five years earlier, when Paul was there last time, it was the apostles who were leading the church. But here, we see that they turned that leadership over to James and an elder board. Some of us have come from churches that that don't have elder boards. And and we can see from the text here that your church should have an elder board. And we can see from a multitude of other verses and other passages and other texts, back two chapters in Acts, over in 2 Timothy and these other places, That a church should be governed by an elder board, a board of qualified, appointed, Holy Spirit-filled, trained defenders and teachers of the truth. And and, and the apostles, man, who, who wouldn't want the apostles to lead your church? Are you kidding me? You'd get the best teaching ever. And yet it isn't always about that. And here the apostles did the right thing. They did the biblical thing. They led by example and appointed James as maybe the head elder. I don't know. Maybe the lead pastor. Maybe he was the primary preacher in the church at Jerusalem. But he had a whole board of elders there. I think that's really interesting. When Paul had been there before, he was interacting with Peter and John and other apostles. James was literally surrounded by a team of appointed elders who also taught the word, because that's what they're supposed to do, also protected the church's doctrine, that's what they're supposed to do, and also provided oversight to the deacons. Remember, years earlier, they had appointed deacons to care for widows and orphans and to distribute food and all these things. I mean, you had a a really good-sized church here with a massive leadership team. It is believed that there was as many as 70 elders at this time. We have five at this church. And, 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 and then that's a wonderful thing. I love all the elders. And, and you know what? Quite frankly, there's times where I act like a meatball or there's a disagreement or something like that, you know, and we, we have to work through our issues and we have to work through things and our understanding of things. And sometimes there's tension and, and, and that's five plus me. Think of 70. <laughs> I'd be like, I will serve at the front door and shake people's hand when they come in, you know? I mean, mean, this must have been just amazing. Now, supporters of this 70 elder board view argue that the church needed, normally probably twice this size, but we can't get all of our people to come at the same time. That's been one of our struggles. It's like, can we all come to church at the same time and fill this place? And the people respond by saying, no, no. I'm in Monterey, okay. 
They also add that these supporters of this view also add that the apostles based the size of the elder board at this time off of the size of the Sanhedrin, which was the Jewish leadership board, if you will, over the religion there that had 70 members as well. And it's really interesting, you know, the first century Christians did copy a lot of what Judaism did, you know, with the synagogues, those later, you know, we met in synagogues as early Christians. We met in homes and synagogues for a while, and, you know, we kind of copied what they were doing, and it was all built in place. We just kind of borrowed that stuff. And so that could be true as well. We don't know for sure. A question, however, arises, if James and the elders were leading the Jerusalem church, where were the apostles at? Were they still in Jerusalem? I don't think so. Uh, MacArthur wrote that they had left Jerusalem to pursue missionary work. They had basically left to go out and, and, and do Matthew 28, make disciples in all nations. They stayed in Jerusalem for probably about 15 years, and after that, they bounced. Some of them bounced earlier than that. One of them was killed. James, the brother of John, was beheaded by Antipas. And this idea of them leaving and doing missions work is supported by Eusebius, the third century church historian, uh, after the fall of Jerusalem, which really, and we don't even think about this, this letter, the book of Acts, was written probably in 64 to 66 AD, somewhere in there. Jerusalem fell four or five years later. The Romans came in and sacked the city and destroyed the temple, 70 AD. And so right after that happened, Eusebius wrote the following. He was a famous Christian historian. He wrote, the inhabited world was divided into zones of influence among the apostles, Thomas in the region of the Parthians, John in Asia, Peter in Pontus and Rome, and Andrew in Scythia. And so that was recorded shortly after what we're studying was written. And so these guys more, very likely did go out and, and do this work. Now, Eusebius accounts for four of the apostles there, but what about the others? There were others. Where'd they go? Well, other historical accounts say that they went in other directions, like down to Africa and further east. They went all over. The third thing to note, the encounter between Paul, James, and the elders marks the end of Paul's third and final missionary journey. Now, I would like to add this. We talked about this earlier. We had a little study going downstairs in Philippians. Paul did have three primary missionary journeys. All of them lasted anywhere from four to six years. Four years in the first one, five in the second, maybe six on the you know, third one, maybe a little less, maybe a little more. But that's not to say that Paul was no longer a missionary on mission. Okay? And you look at these fancy little maps and they got all these red streaks showing where Paul went. Well, let's just keep in mind that at this point, his third missionary journey, the official one ends, but he never was not on mission. He was still on mission. And so people who go off to missions may go off to missions and go overseas and do these things. And when they come back here, that doesn't mean they're off mission. Christians are always on mission. And so this really marks the end of that. In the next set of verses, Paul will give a full report of what took place during his trip, during that third missionary journey. And that is the signal that that particular journey has come to an end. The third thing to note is their location. Paul had a pretty good size, as I said, entourage with him. And James may have had up to 70 elders with him. The place they met at at this point here when they came together or when Paul came to him had to be large enough to hold probably around 100 people. First thing that came to mind for me was the upper room. It could hold it. Back in Acts 2, we saw that 120 believers assembled there. Remember when the Holy Spirit came and descended upon them, flaming tongues? But the church outgrew the upper room on the day of Pentecost. 
The believers began to assemble at Solomon's portico, which was large enough to hold thousands and thousands of people. And this appears to be where they are at in our text. Paul and his companions went to Solomon's portico to connect with James and the elders. Just trying to give you this data. Some would say that's just meaningless stuff. We don't need that. But I like, I don't know about you, but I like to visualize how it's playing out and what's going on. And I like to visualize what Solomon's portico looked like with all of these columns, you know, all the way around it, this high roof, this beautiful building that was basically very close to the temple. And this is where they came together. This is where they met. And it looks like they came together during an event where there were many, many people gathered because in verse 20, James pointed to a multitude of believers. And so it it would appear that Paul and his companions, his entourage, stepped into maybe a worship service or something of that nature. And that's what we have playing out here. Let's look at 19 through 22. It says, after greeting them, he related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they glorified God. I love that. And they said to him, you see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. They are all zealous for the law. And they have been told about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to their customs. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. When Paul entered the presence of James and the elders, Luke's, Luke, the author of this book, tells us that he greeted them and then began to tell them about his third missionary journey. It says he related one by one the things God did among the Gentiles through his ministry. Paul went into detail here. He didn't summarize. And we've seen a lot of summary in the book of Acts. Because it's like once a sermon has been preached, we don't have to keep hearing that sermon. It's summarized. He pointed to specific, specific experiences and events, one by one. He talked about the churches he planted in Ephesus. He talked about the churches he planted in Thessalonica and Berea, Derby, and so on. He was even able to point to delegates from those churches, right? How cool is that? He may have pointed to these, this group, Segundus and, and Timothy and Gaius, these guys that he had with him that were from all those churches he planted. He may have pointed to them and said, look, we preached the gospel and planted churches throughout the Roman Empire, man. And these men are leaders from those churches. How cool is that? That you not only show up and speak about what's happened and and, and give them your side of it and tell them about your experience, but you bring living, breathing, walking proof with you. These men have been converted to Christ and they are now leaders in their churches. They have come to present this offering to you. They ran up this offering. They encouraged their churches to give in these things. I think it's amazing pointed to them and said, look at this. And I also love how Paul did not attempt in any way, shape, or form to take credit for all this success. Boy, that's a thing today, isn't it? You notice that in the church today? You got all these mega super pastors and it's despicable. I'm so-and-so and and I've planted 20 churches and, uh, you know, and no, man, that wasn't Paul. And I'll tell you, there isn't anyone in the church today that's had the impact on the world that Paul had. So we can just all humble ourselves, no matter how great our ministries have been, no matter how much God has done through us, no matter how much we try to take credit for, we all pale in comparison to this homie right here. This guy was the man. 
And yet, he did not try to take any credit for this success. He actually said God did these things amongst the Gentiles, didn't he? You see that right there? Paul could have said, well, you know, <laughs> Papa's collars, you know, and, you know, I got the gift, brother. That hurt. You know? God did these things among the Gentiles. This was Paul's way of shifting the spotlight onto God. Unlike many pastors today, Paul did not desire to become known as a successful church planner, a rock star pastor. He did not seek after the praises of men. I can't see that anywhere in his epistles or in the book of Acts. He was not a glory hog. On the contrary, he wanted God to be praised. And that is exactly what happened when James and the elders heard his report, isn't it? Look at what it says. They what? Glorified Paul. What? Glorified God. May we all be like Paul and remember that it is God who works in and through our ministries. We don't have to be narcissists. It is God who works in and through our ministries. It is, it is God who brings results. It is God who causes things to grow. It is God who saves. And it is God who deserves all the glory. All the glory, right? Say it. All the glory and all the praise. This is his work. It's not mine. It's not yours. By his grace, he has invited you in to serve him and to be a partaker of it, to be a part of it, but never, never to glory in it. If you're going to glory in anything, glory in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Glory in Christ, that's it. Not in what you can or you can do and can achieve. And so these people are just praising God. They're glorifying God, man. Wow, Paul, are you serious? Look at these guys. Hey, how are you doing, man? My name's James. Oh, my name's Segundus. Wow, you're a leader over at that church. You're an elder at that church. You're a deacon at that church. You greet people at the door at that church. You set out the communion elements. You, you, you help little kids and babies and stuff. And, and don't misread me there. They didn't split our kids and families up in these days. Babies were in the service. They should be. But man, what glorying they did to God here. May we be like him. And then James is sort of captivated by this moment. I think he's excited. I think he's pumped up because you know what? If you have the Holy Spirit and you hear about the things that God's doing, you're gonna get pumped up. You're gonna get excited. And so he's, he's listening to this testimony and looking at these men who love Jesus and he's pumped up and he just kind of points out to all these people. He points out towards the work that God has been doing in Jerusalem, Right? He says, you see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews who have believed. I think it's amazing what God has been doing in those Roman territories, in those Greek, those Grecian territories. I think it's awesome, but let me tell you something, brother. Took around, take a, uh, a look around, take a look behind you there. Turn around and take a look at what God's been doing here. And there's a vast multitude of men and women and children and people there maybe worshiping. I don't know what they were doing Amazing. Mm. Many, many thousands there gathered. Many thousands. And I think that this was an interesting thing for Paul because his recent experience among Jews in ministry was not positive. <laughs> right? 
And we studied the book of Acts. Who ran him out of all the cities? Was it the Gentiles? Are you kidding me? They were hanging on to his legs saying, don't go. It was a band of Jews that hated Jesus Christ and hated the gospel that persecuted him, that he received the 40 less one lashings three times, that he was thrown in jail, that he was beaten, that he was lowered out of a room in a basket. Must have been a big basket. It was the Jews that had persecuted him through, during all three phases of his missionary work. And that really took a toll on him, I believe. I think it did. But I think he was encouraged to look out and to see all these believers, to know that God was at work. There may have been times where he felt like, because he was ministering to Jews too during his journeys, that they just don't get it. They're not going to get it. I'll keep faithful to the mission, but they're not going to get it. And yet he kind of turns around and he sees all this work that God has been doing. It's pretty amazing. You know what's interesting about Paul, though, is that though he may have been rejected by his own people because he was a Jew, he was a Pharisee of Pharisees, if you will. He was a highly religious Jew, educated. He never gave up on them. He never gave up or forsook them. He did rebuke them mightily and many times, but he never gave up. He did, however, turn his efforts, his focus onto Gentiles. He actually became known as the apostle to the Gentiles, Romans eleven thirteen. And the neat thing here is that despite what Paul experienced, God was still doing work among the Jewish people, even though he didn't see a whole lot of that while he was out there. He could turn around and say, wow, this is absolutely amazing. Some say that many of these believers, right, there was a multitude there, were maybe older believers, maybe from the day of Pentecost, maybe like Manasseh. Maybe they were from that, you know, that period of, of revival, if you will. And, and, but we have to keep in mind that Jerusalem suffered massive persecution at the hands of Saul uh, before he became Paul. And the church scattered and went all over the place. So I don't think that it's probable that these were believers who returned to the city. I believe this is a new crop. I believe God was still at work in that city and still saving people and saving that remnant. I don't think that these were people who just, you know, got saved there in the early days, then left, and then came back. Because if we're going to agree to that, then we have to also say that persecution must have died out in Jerusalem. Because if it didn't die out, if it, if it was still ongoing, how would they have made their way back into the city? Persecution did continue on long after Stephen was killed, long after the days of Saul. As I alluded to earlier, the Apostle James, just a Short time after Saul was converted and, you know, was going away to start his first missionary journey, the apostle James was captured by Herod Antipas, or not Antipas, but uh, what's his face? Agrippa. And he was beheaded. And so persecution continued in the city long after the death of Stephen and all these things. And so I think these were new believers. Paul was... Warned not to go into the city because it was dangerous for Christians. <laughs> it's doubtful that these are older believers, as many seem to speculate. I think they were new or newer. I don't know how they were able to still gather in Solomon's portico as a mixed multitude with persecution happening. It's pretty amazing how bold they must have been, how courageous. But let's not think to ourselves that persecution wasn't real during this time. Paul had been warned how many times not to go? Very, very serious. 
And another thing that he says, James says about this multitude of people, he says, you know, hey, basically look at the Lord's work here. He's been working on your side. Look at what he's been doing here. But he also makes a little statement about them that's a little problematic. He says, they are all zealous for the law. What is meant by that statement? Why wouldn't he say they're all zealous for the gospel? Why wouldn't he say they're all zealous for Jesus? Why wouldn't he say they're all zealous for loving one another? The brothers, the church. They're all zealous, you know, for being compassionate. They're all zealous for something else. No, he says they're zealous for the law. And I'm telling you, that's a little problematic. What does he mean? Well, to be zealous is to be very passionate about a person, place, or thing, such as a cause. During these days, there were Jews who were passionately committed to nationalism, to the nation of Israel, even to the point that they violently attacked their captors, the Romans. They were known as what? Zealots. In a similar way, the Jewish believers were zealous, not for the nation of Israel, not in a violent way towards Romans in any sense, but for the law of God. They were very passionate about the law of God, and you must understand the law of God really quickly if we're going to really grasp this. It's divided into three categories very quickly. You have the moral law. The moral laws are the direct commands of God. A good example would be the Ten Commandments. The moral laws include penalties for failure to obey the ordinances. The moral laws reveal the nature and will of God and still apply to us today. We do not obey the moral law as a way to obtain salvation, but we aim to obey the moral law because that is the kind of lifestyle that pleases God. You have the civic or civil law. The civil law dictated Israel's daily living as a nation and society. It covered everything from murder to restitution for a man who had been gored by his neighbor's ox. Oh, if you lost your arm because of your neighbor's ox, you're entitled to this, this, and this. It was kind of like that law, the civil laws, compensation laws, punishment for certain things. Modern society and culture are so radically different from those days that some of the guidelines that are listed in Leviticus where these laws are just cannot be followed specifically. They aren't applied to us because things were different then. However, the principles behind many of the civil laws can and should be used as a guide for our conduct. And then you have the ceremonial law. Ceremonial law included specific regulations that were meant to distinguish the Israelites from their pagan neighbors. Things like dietary and clothing restrictions and feasts and festivals, and they had a multitude of them. The ceremonial laws related to Israel's worship, and they pointed forward to Jesus. Though we are no longer bound to them because of the finished work of Christ, the principles behind them, that is to worship and love God, still apply in some ways. Now, which category was James speaking of in verse 20? Right? They're zealous for the law. Was he talking about the moral law, the civil law, or the ceremonial law? He was talking about the whole law. All of it. I think that's what he was speaking about here. All these Jewish believers at this time were zealous for all of God's law. They had been raised to be that way. If you were Jewish, you were raised to be that way, to revere every facet of God's law and every ordinance. You were commanded to obey all of it. That was part of their education and upbringing. Even as Christians, they were still zealous for God's law, and in some ways, that was okay. We have to remember at this time, at this particular time in history, as Paul Rogers said the other day, the church was in transition. Okay, kind of began as a Jewish thing and it had to morph into a Christian thing, which means a lot of stuff had to be let go of or put aside. The focus had to change. 
You know, the church was moving away, so to speak, because they're primarily Jewish, at least in this region, were moving away from the old covenant mindset to a new covenant or the new covenant mindset. Jesus fulfilled all of God's law. He literally did. He fulfilled every facet of it for us. Therefore, the focus of ourselves and on every Christian ought to be on Jesus and not the law itself. People struggled with this during this time, especially the Jews. Jewish believers absolutely received Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, as their Messiah, but many of them continued to cling to their rules and traditions and facets of these laws, if not the whole law. Now, the apostles never condemned this behavior, but they did warn them, read some of the epistles, like both Peter letters and other places. One of the warnings was that they were not supposed to rely upon the law for salvation. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, according to the scripture alone, for the glory of God alone. There's your five solas. Doesn't have to do with how well you obey the law. Obeying the law doesn't produce salvation. And so this was primary in this day, even for these Jewish believers. Hey, 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 okay, okay, I, I understand that you're making the Ten Commandments a, a primary focus. Okay, that's okay, but do you understand that your obedience to them does not produce justification? Well, we got a problem here, Houston. Second, it was wrong for Jews to force the ceremonial laws on Gentile believers, the ceremonial laws had been given to the Israelites, not to Gentiles. Gentile believers were not required to be circumcised or to attend the plethora of Jewish feasts and festivals. It's not a Gentile thing, man. In fact, Jewish believers were not required to do these things either. But if they wanted to, they could as long as it didn't cause them or others to stumble. You see, there was a lot of latitude and grace given to the early church because it had to transition out of an old covenant mindset to a new covenant mindset. And the apostles were highly gracious. James and the elders were. Even the apostle Paul was. And yet, when Paul entered Solomon's portico, it raised concern with James and the elders because of a rumor that had been circulating among the community and church. James felt that Paul was in serious danger. He described the rumor in verse 21. They, that's the zealous Jewish believers, have been told about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs. Now, this is a serious charge here at this point. The rumor had to do with Paul preaching against the law of Moses to the Jews who were sprinkled among the Gentiles in the Gentile territories. You can almost always find some Jewish people in those areas, in those synagogues or churches. Well, there wasn't synagogues in all those areas, but in those areas or districts. Now, apparently there were some Jews from those areas who had listened to Paul preach and then traveled to Jerusalem to sound the alarm. By the time Paul reached Jerusalem, at this point right here, the whole city had heard the rumor. People were ready for Paul if he came. The warnings that Paul had received from the Tyrians and Agabus and anyone else had to do with this rumor and the threat that it posed. Everyone thought of Paul in this area, in the surrounding area, of, as one who preached against the word of God, against the precepts of God. What an incredible rumor this was. The question is, was it true? It's a great question. 
Did Paul preach against the law of Moses? Did Paul try to dissuade Jews from obeying the commands of God? Did he tell them, don't circumcise your kids, don't circumcise them, don't do any of that stuff, get rid of all that stuff, none of that stuff matters, the ceremonial law is meaningless, blah, 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 blah. The answer is no, never. Paul taught that obedience to ceremonial ordinances like circumcision is not required for those who are in Christ, especially Gentiles who were not the original recipients of the ordinance. That's what Paul preached. And, and some Jewish people just could not get that through their heads. They have to, if they're going to be Christians, they have to be circumcised. It's what we know, it's what we believe, it's the way that it's always been. And so they began to force that on non-Jewish people. And Paul said, don't do that, because really, ultimately, I know this is going to stink, circumcision means nothing. What means something is Christ. That's what matters. And some of these guys were just, he's wrong. Yeah, grounded in those traditions, clinging to those things, which ultimately exposes where their sense of security, identity, hope, purpose was in those things and not in Christ. Paul never commanded people not to be circumcised. He simply reasoned that circumcision was part of the old covenant, which means that it no longer had any spiritual value or symbolism because Christ is the fulfillment of circumcision. Because Christ is the fulfillment of every law and ordinance. That's what Paul preached. We could literally capture the essence of Paul's preaching with the following summary statement. It's all about Jesus. You want to know the gist of his preaching in every sermon, in every epistle, in every exhortation? It's all about Jesus. He always brought people who couldn't get that down to that reality. Circumcision? No. Jesus. Washing our hands a certain way? No. Jesus. It's all about Jesus. He read his epistles, you'll see when he, he read his first letter to the Galatians. Halfway through his third missionary journey, he wrote to the Galatians. He had just planted that church not too long earlier and he had to write to them and plead with them to return to the true gospel. Why? Because false teachers had come into the church and persuaded them to make the law their savior rather than Jesus. That's the gist of Galatians. You know, when well-intending Jews, okay, they're not trying to harm anyone. They just think there's value in the things that they do and whatever. And, and they, they have kind of the right attitude about it. And, and they, I want you to experience the fullness of Christ, you know, whatever, blah, blah, blah. When they came and tried to persuade others to adopt the ceremonial ordinances like circumcision and these other things, Paul simply responded with, it's all about Jesus. I'm boiling down his teaching. It's not about those things, guys. It's about Jesus. When wrong intention people came along, Jews, who tried to force the ceremonial ordinances on others, Paul responded by saying, it's all about Jesus. He had a little more tone there. You know, we look at the book of Hebrews. I hope you've read that before. And it, it really is all about the supremacy of Christ over all. The same thing could be said about everything that Paul said and wrote. It's about Jesus. Not these things that you're used to doing. Not these things that your grandma taught you to do. You're missing the point to all of those things because the point to all of those things is Jesus. And yet, many in Paul's day struggled to let go of the past. You know, the whole grace alone thing is, is truly unappealing to unbelievers. It is. They hate it because they want to earn their way. I know, I was one forever. 
And, it, and, and it's, it's, it's unappealing not just to unbelievers. It's, it's appealing to believers who grew up in a religious tradition that think that there's ultimate value in all the stuff they used to do. Many in Paul's day struggled to let go of the past and to, to make this transition from old covenant to new covenant. The Gentiles, quite frankly, struggled to put away their old sinful practices, and the Jews struggled to put away with their old religious practices. And Paul corrected both groups. Unfortunately, some of his Jewish listeners interpreted his words as an all-out forsaking of the law, antinomianism, lawlessness. And that seems to be the case in our text. The rumor literally made Paul look like a lawless preacher and deceiver. This was a very dangerous moment for him right here. Very dangerous. James and the elders loved Paul, his companions. They all loved Paul. He was a faithful brother. They all loved him with a deep love. They were all concerned for him. They did not want to see him be harmed, especially at the hands of believers who are mixed up on these things or anyone else. And so they came up with a plan to try to end the rumor. Look at verses 23 through 26. Do therefore what we tell you. We have... Four men who are under a vow. This is where it gets really interesting and weird. Take these men and purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads. Sinead O'Connor, right? Thus all will know that there is nothing in what they have been told about you, but that you yourself also live in observance of the law. But as for the Gentiles who have believed, we have sent a letter with our judgment and that they should abstain from what, he has, what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. Then Paul took the men and the next day he purified himself along with them and he went into the temple giving notice where the days of purification would be fulfilled and the offering presented for each one of them. Now the idea here is that Paul might be able to squash the rumor through performing a public demonstration of his own acceptance of the law and willingness to obey it. There were four men here at this time who were under what's called a Nazarite vow. A Nazarite vow was an act of thanksgiving or of dedication to God. It was a 30-day promise made to God by the person, by the vower, if you will. I don't even know what that would be called by the person who was making the vow not to drink any alcohol, no craft beer, no wine, give it up. Wouldn't be easy for me, I, I like a little beer here and there. Not to touch anything that is dead, that wouldn't be hard for me at all. And not to cut your hair, okay? No booze, you, got cut, yeah, you can't cut your hair, you gotta let it grow out long and shaggy. It was only 30 days, how long is your hair gonna get? And then not to touch anything that was dead. And, and, that, and we could go into that in some detail, but it's interesting. But that's what a Nazarite vow was. Now, a few months back, we talked about how Paul made a Nazarite vow before leaving Corinth in Acts 18.18. 18. <laughs> interesting, right? Oh, yeah, he's completely forsaken the law. He took a Nazarite vow a month earlier. Hello? When he uh, reached... Centuria, he cut his hair. That was the, like the final step, if you will, of the Nazarite vow. That was the last thing you had to do. And then the idea is that you take your hair and you offer it as a sacrifice or as an offering to God at the temple and it's burned on the altar. That was the last thing for Paul to do. And I suspect he probably did that during this trip because he had just taken the Nazarite vow maybe a month earlier, maybe a little earlier than that. He had his hair with him probably. The four men mentioned in the text had about a week left until their vow was up. 
But somewhere along the line, they had broken their vow and defiled themselves. They had either drank booze, touched something dead, or got a trim on their head. Now, in order to get back on track, they had to be ceremonially washed at the pool of Siloam or the pool of Bethesda and then make several special sacrifices each at the temple. So there was a way, if they messed up the vow, to get back on track. James asked Paul to accompany the men, to be washed and cleansed with them, and to pay for their expenses, which would include the haircuts and the sacrifices. And let me tell you, those things were very pricey. And they say that any person who volunteered to pay for someone else's completion of their Nazarite vow was super, super pious. Man, if you did that for yourself, that's one thing. But if you paid for Sam and Fred next to you to do it, man, you were a super pious guy. Now, Paul agreed to go along with the plan. Now, keep in mind that Paul understood the purpose of the plan, which, was, uh, which was, had nothing to do with him actually literally being cleansed, in a sense, or anything like that. I mean, he understood that his redemption had been paid for by the blood of Jesus Christ. And he understood those things. And so he wasn't going to get ceremonial cleanse. He didn't think he needed it, although everyone around him did because he had traveled in Gentile lands. He understood the purpose of this. He understood that, hey, I'm going to engage in this ceremonial cleansing and these, and these things. I'm going to get washed at a pool and all of this. You know, I'm going to do it because of this moment for the sake of a few things, but I'm not doing it because I have to. He understood the gospel. And a lot of people try to take this passage and spin it and make Paul look like an idiot who, you know, capitulated and went back to the old ways. He did not. Paul was not about to engage in some ceremonial cleansing or an animal sacrifice or a grain sacrifice or whatever it is that they wanted at the temple because he believed he needed to be forgiven for his sins. Let's just get that straight right now. He understood that he had been forgiven once and for all by the blood sacrifice of the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ. Paul was not capitulating he was not returning to his old way and religion. On the contrary, he was making himself like one who is under the law that he might win those who are under the law. You ever read that? I became like a Jew to win Jews. I became like a Gentile to win Gentiles. And that doesn't mean that he entered into Gentile sin. And that doesn't mean that he did everything that a Jew would do. This was his way of doing that. Paul's compliance here had to do with evangelism and unity among the brethren. This was an honorable thing that he sought to do here. Paul did not come to Jerusalem to stir things up amongst the brethren, to drive a wedge between believers. He came with a gift from the Gentiles that was meant to promote brotherly love and solidarity in the church. And when he realized that the devil could use his past preaching, you know, that the devil could distort those things and then use his presence in the city to pit weaker brothers against one another, he immediately submitted to their idea. He was doing this for the sake of the church and for the sake of unity. He didn't want the church to get all tore up over this and to start fighting each other. And you've got to know this too. Paul is one of the most courageous men I've ever, ever studied in Scripture. And so I can tell you without a shadow of a doubt that he was not interested in fully going through with this to preserve his life. 
Oh, that'll save my neck? Okay, let's go get washed and I'll pay for them. Had nothing to do with that. He did not follow James's instructions so that he could protect his own neck. He already knew that he was going to be seized, shackled, and turned over to the Gentiles. He believed those little prophetic warnings that were given. It doesn't matter if I get dunked five times, put something on my head, dance around like somebody, and that's what's going to please him. I'm going to get shackled. The guy took my belt off and tied himself up with it. You think Paul was a fool? He knew what was coming. He did not do this to try to preserve himself, to save his own neck. Paul's only concern here was the welfare of the church. Before leaving with the Nazarites to go through with the plan, James reminded Paul about what took place five years earlier, about how the apostles, James, and the elders assembled in the very place, in that very place, and accepted the Gentiles into the church, and how they all unanimously voted not to burden the Gentiles with circumcision, how they encouraged the Gentiles to abstain from the things that would promote disunity. This was, and that's what he's talking about, where he says, hey, we, we already sent a letter to the Gentiles. Well, Paul knows this because he was the one that delivered and preached the letter. This was James' way of saying to Paul that their position in Jerusalem had not changed. It was his way of, he, he literally quoted the letter that they sent and the instructions to the Gentiles, which had nothing to do with circumcision or any of that. They didn't, and, and he quoted it verbatim right here in this text saying, hey, we told the Gentiles to do this, this, and this, and this. This is going to promote unity in a, in a sense. And what he's saying here by quoting it verbatim is, is that, dude, we still believe what we believe. We don't see that you're in fault or that you've been doing what the rumor says. We don't think that you're opposed to the law of God. Quite frankly, we believe that you have been completely obedient. In fact, these guys were the ones that sent him with the letter to distribute it and preach its contents. Paul had done exactly what he was told to do. And so when he starts quoting verbatim the letter you know, what he's saying to Paul is that, dude, we support you. You've done exactly what you were supposed to do, and our position has not changed. In other words, we're not making you do this because we think that those things have value for you and you're going to get you saved or something. You're doing these things to preserve peace in this community, in this area. It was literally James's way of affirming Paul by going back through the letter that Paul carried with him wherever he went and he preached that letter everywhere, it was by citing it, it was their way of affirming that Paul had done nothing wrong. How important is that for Paul to know that in that moment? What if he felt like part of that rumor was true? And, and, and the elder board and the leader of this church said, we know it's not true and we're sticking to what we told you originally. So be encouraged by that. The last verse, verse 26, shows that Paul followed through with a plan. He went with the Nazarites and cleansed himself in one of the pools. And he went to the temple and paid the fees and made the necessary sacrifices and began the seven-day purification period. Closing. If we were to take this passage, kind of funnel it down, boil it down, what would the primary theme be? The thing that really, really stands out is the very title of the sermon, Paul's humility and zeal for unity. That's our object lesson. That's what Luke wants us to see clearly. 
The believers in Jerusalem were zealous for the law. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. We should love the law and seek to obey it, not so that we can be saved, but because we are saved and desire to please God with our lives. The problem was their zeal for the law had overridden their love for others. They were zealous for the law, but at the same time, they believed an incriminating rumor about a faithful brother, didn't they? You see it there? This was unloving. And incredibly, it was a breach of the very law they were zealous for. Isn't that amazing how you can set your sights on doing something right and then later discover that you were wrong about it entirely? That your focus was off while you were doing that? Their zeal for the law and doing all of the things and I would say this, the emphasis was on the ceremonial aspects of it, was so powerful that it literally obscured their ability to love their brethren. And then you have Paul on the other side, who knew that he was despised and slandered by the multitude there. And who understood, Paul understood, man, believe me when I say this, he understood that he did not have to do what James and the elders suggested. And let me point that out. That was a suggestion there, not a command. He didn't have to go through with any of that stuff. He could have said, I don't need to do any of those things. I haven't done anything wrong. And yet, he humbled himself and went through with the plan why? Because he wanted to protect himself? No. Because he loved the church and was zealous for unity. You see, that's the difference between the zealous believers and Paul. They were zealous for the law. But Paul was zealous for unity in the church. Did these zealous Jewish believers not understand how they could truly honor and fulfill the law through loving God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength and through loving their neighbors as themselves, I would say according to this text, no. They did not. But Paul understood this. And this is precisely what he was seeking to do through his humble compliance. And let me tell you something right here. Paul's example reminds me of someone very, very important. Reminds me of Christ. The glorious, eternal son of God who did not have to humble himself, who did not have to condescend to come to us, to leave his throne and glory and endless praise and worship, to come here he did not have to take the path of suffering and death, but he did. Why? For the sake of the church. Boom. How can we...
You think this text is about Paul? (laughs) It's about Jesus. It's always about Jesus. As long as I have this beating and air going in and out of my lungs and I'm pastoring at this church, it will always be about Jesus. The enemy can bring whatever he wants. And if the day should come, and I pray that it never does, that I should become weak and feeble and let things go and turn to other things, remove me immediately. Send me packing. How can we be like Jesus and Paul this week? In what ways can we humble ourselves and lay down our lives for the sake of the church, for the sake of Christ? How can we promote this week love and unity? What unhelpful traditions are we clinging to? Is there anything from our upbringing, whether it be religious or not, that keeps us that hinders us? Is there any sort of misguided zeal within us that keeps us from truly honoring and obeying the law of God? Ask yourselves these things. I mean, these are great questions to ask yourself before we take communion. I suspect that Each one of us in this room needs to do an evaluation and to find out what we've been overly zealous for. Maybe it's just been some other cause than the gospel. I got a Facebook thing with about 2,500 followers and most of the Christians I'm connected to are, are, are zealously opposed to Obama. And I'm not a big fan of him either. Is that what this thing's about? Why don't you, if that's you, become zealous about Jesus? Because our only hope in this nation for anything is Jesus. That's it. I don't know where you're at or what you're struggling through or what's blocking you or messing with you or, you know, how exactly you need to be like Christ this week or Paul. Well, let's pray before we do communion. Lord, thank you for your word, which is a double-edged sword. And it cuts right to the core of us. I know I was shattered when I was writing this sermon because I know, I know that I have been zealous in areas that do not deserve that kind of time and energy. Well, you're the pastor. And quite frankly, I'm the chief sinner in this place. I'm not without sin. I'm not without struggle. I'm not without warfare. And neither are any of these people in this room. God, convict us now. Show us where we're at and what we've been doing. And lead us to the right path. Lead us to Christ. May we become zealous for the gospel, which is truly the good news. Do we believe that? Help us in this time, Lord Jesus. Help us in this time. Help us to remember what the elements represent. The bloody, broken body of Christ 
His blood shed for the remission of our sin, our freedom, our liberation from all tradition, from all sin, from all everything, anything and everything that is bad, evil, wicked, that is opposed to you. You have liberated us now. And so may we remember what the elements represent. May we rejoice as we take them. May we first confess our sin. And may everyone in this room know that this is a moment for believers, not for unbelievers. It's only the children of God that take these things. Search our hearts, speak to us. May we confess and may we take these things with all joy and anticipation of your return where one day we will dine with you at your supper table face to face. Oh, how glorious that will be. And you will set all things right on earth. And we hope for and wait for and anticipate that moment. Thank you, Lord Jesus. And we pray this in your holy name. Amen. Help yourselves.